Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 64 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you not by South by Southwest, <laughs> but by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek, despite South by Southwest. Have you done any South by Southwest activities? Um, no. Um, I will say my sister-in-law, Dori Shafrir, was here. She was on a panel on Tuesday. She talked about her book? She talked about, no, she talked about uh, gender disparity and VC funding. Which is kind of part of the book, right? Well, it's part, it's part, it's related to the book. Yes. Um, anyway, um, the book startup, by the way, available at bookstores near you. Um, so Dory <laughs> was in town. Karen went with her. Uh, I got to watch Maddie, but I got, we, we got her platinum badge. Um, although I haven't figured oh, out how nice. to use it yet. Oh, you, what are you doing here with me? Go downtown. <laughs> be cool. What am I doing here with you? Well, you know, nothing is happening in That's our true. universe this week. It's, it's been such a quiet week, Bobby. <laughs> I mean, I just, spring break has been just so relaxing and, and news-free. All right. So it's Thursday, March 15th. Beware the odds of March. It is Indeed. 10.30 Central Time. At 2, Bobby. At 2, Steve. Uh, um, friends. Friends, podcasters, countrymen, lend us your ears. You are, in fact, lending us your ears. Steve, are we actually going to release this episode today? We've had two straight. I think that's the plan. I, I, th- I think this one should just go straight to straight to right. distribution. It's spring break, so instead of taking the time off, we actually dropped two episodes this week. Hey, we have loads to talk about. But but first, but first, South by uh, on opening night of South by film uh, last week. Uh, my my daughter, my oldest daughter, wanted to go downtown to see uh, what was going on at the red carpet, at the mm-hmm. world premiere sure. for John Krasinski and Emily Blunt's uh, new horror flick. And I got to say, it was a lot of fun being down there. We kind of stalked around the front of the Paramount Theater, and here comes Michael Bay. Yeah. Here comes you know John Krasinski. It's Jim from the office. Listen, listen. My my lack of South by involvement is not for lack of interest. <laughs> You've um, been busy. I, I was waiting for the invitation to the Westworld installation. I was just I oh, was waiting. I I was waiting by my phone. HBO did not call. Well, listeners, uh, plan your spring break next year. Come to Austin for South by. Everyone else did. Why not you too? (laughs) Um, So I will say before we turn to to substance, I want to say a a little hello to to some new listeners. Right? We we found out that we have some fans in the rowing club at Macquarie University. All right, guys, row hard today. Uh, I would say good day, mates, but I just can't. My Aussie accent just won't work. You you did it. Um, And also hello to my grandmother. Oh Uh, hi. My grandma apparently is now listening to our podcast. Well, you know, we do love having friends and family listening, yeah, yeah. so I love it that you're here. That, that quadruples listening. our listeners. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right, so so let's do a quick a quick table of contents for for you know all yeah. now I guess thirty five of our listeners. There's a, there's a lot. So we have some, you know, we, we come to bury Rex Tillerson, not to praise him. Um, just picking up that. I'll just go with you, your Mark you, Anthony You theme. can say that. I, I, I will praise him a little bit. Uh, uh, but we're going to start with a little bit of uh, uh, musical chairs atop the State Department and CIA and what that portends, Bobby, for some potentially interesting confirmation hearings. Yeah, that is right. We have some we have some fireworks on the horizon. Fireworks! Shots fired! And, and there will be national security legal implications. Yes. Uh, speaking of shots fired, uh, we have a brewing international crisis between Russia and Oh, I don't know. The United Kingdom. So Prime Minister May has, has declared a use of force against the United Kingdom. We'll talk about the, the legal and legal implications of that. And I, I at least think that there's not a lot that really turns on that from the legal side, that it's really uh, a question of what uh, the practical steps are the United Kingdom that takes. But we'll unpack all of that. 
And that especially, will, especially now that the U.S. is apparently agreeing that uh, something bad happened. And not only agreeing, but in a, in a what I thought was a really remarkable move out of the out of the Treasury today. Yes, we've got new sanctions against Russia. Sanctions that not only talk about very expressly about Russian meddling in the U.S. election and Russian responsibility for the NotPetya cyber attack, but also specifically calling out the the Sergei the attempted assassination of uh, Sergei Skripal and really strong. Give the administration credit. This is a fairly strong uh, anti-Russia position to I, take. I will give. I will give playing against type. I will give, well, playing against type and playing against the boss. I will. I will give the Treasury Department full credit for this. Um, yeah. I, I, I wonder if the White House and by the White House I mean certain presidents of the United States are fully aware of what was going on. So you're saying the executive is a they, not in not an it. A, a, yeah. a, more and more by the minute, my friend. But it's a good segue to talk about those sanctions to talk about this interesting decision on Monday by Cifius. Yeah, or or the president adoption of the CFIUS. We'll, we'll talk about what CFIUS is, and it'll pick up our new theme on the show. You know, we've got milcoms, we've got military detention, we've got the Mueller investigation, and now we have a recurring theme of, of things the president can do under the economic sanction heading. Oy. We, we had tariffs, and now we've got CFIUS. Uh, yeah. uh, the answer talks to be quite a lot. Yes, indeed. Um, including blocking mergers of major companies, it yeah. seems. So a very, a very significant development we'll talk about a little bit. All right. Uh, speaking of significant developments, um, the administration has finally released its long-awaited report on uses of force. Quite exciting stuff. So, you know, in any other, I think, moment, right, in our field, that actually would have been a huge development. If the Obama administration had done something like that, it would have gotten all kinds of attention. I think it's flown large under the radar this week. It's Yeah, there's no oxygen for it. I also think that there's not any real there there. Well, uh, I, I, the I actually think that's a criticism of the report. But Unless I disagree, I think that it reflects the status quoism of yeah. the legal framework and the policy framework. But uh, we'll talk about that in great Indeed. detail. All right, um, we'll talk briefly about the the dramatic uh, denouement of the House Intelligence Committee's Russia investigation. The the finding of no collusion. So, you know, in some ways, maybe it's just better to, for them to just to stop being part of this story, and we can focus. So, someone on, did suggest that that like actually getting Devin Nunes off the stage is I, a useful development. I actually that so that's my view. Um, we probably won't have time to do a full preview of the Al Alwi case. It's going to be argued next Tuesday in the D.C. Circuit. This is a Guantanamo detainee arguing that, in fact, um, the situation has changed so dramatically on the ground in Afghanistan that the government's detention authority has unraveled. I think, Bobby, you and I both think that's an uphill battle. Might be, <coughs> no chance. Um, might be we're talking about the, the legal questions and the role of the courts more generally in answering this question. Absolutely. But maybe it's, next an, to, it's an important question. Yes. It'll be fun to talk it through. I don't think it's going anywhere. But, but and maybe, and, and, and I also suspect that by the time we get there. We'll be we'll be long into this episode and saving it for next week. Right, exactly. But it's probably going to happen before we record next. So that's next Tuesday morning in the DC circuit. And it is critical that we have our madness for. Volatility. I was going to say, and we have to save some time at the end because you know the NCAA tournament tips off in oh I think thirty five minutes. minutes. Yeah. Um, and so we want to get on we the have record. To be on the record with, with our, our bad terrible predictions, predictions <laughs> just so that in the you know miraculous chance that uh, uh, they come true, we, we want have, credit. We want credit. And, and indeed, this uh, really quick aside. This is a good a good moment to mention. So yesterday was Pi Day, oh, right? Yeah. 3.4 um, and, and, and so this, on. The CIA made this whole big deal on their Twitter account about how you can find the CIA's yeah. founding date yes, in like, yes. well, so listen, I'm not a math major. Oh wait, yes I was. Um, oh, were you? Pi has an infinite number of digits. It is therefore mathematically the case that any sequence of numbers appears 
in the digits of pi. Does it therefore also follow, Steve, that much as an infinite number of monkeys on an infinite number of typewriters well, would write everything? Yes. That pi actually has, if you tra- you know pick your 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 method of converting numbers to letters, but every uh, thing ever written, everything that ever will be written, is also in pi. I mean, in order, and also in reverse, and in all sorts of infinite other sequences. Listen, right? number theory is fun, man. I mean, this is this is you know this is why I got out of math. <laughs> I think I think it's cute that the CIA picked that out. Although it would have seemed like more of an NSA. NSA it really does seem more an NSA. Yeah, like yeah. it's math, right? It's you math, know, it's, yeah. it's all right. So um, let's start at the beginning. Um, so the beginning is the president. Well, so the, on the same day that the Justice Department was arguing in court that the president's personal Twitter account is not uh, a means of conducting official business, the president fired the Secretary of State in a tweet. Yeah, well, and there, there's some debate about whether he got the message in in a late night call while he was on the plane. A so, few nights so earlier. the debate only arises from disputed accounts. So, the State Department spokesperson provided one account and was then promptly fired by the White House for providing said <laughs> account. Um, I'm willing to go with the State Department's account here. I, I think that's that certainly makes sense to me. So, what, what what's the broader significance okay. beyond the obvious, uh, you know, observations of the rise and fall of great figures in Washington? So, Tillerson versus Pompeo, right? So, let's assume for the moment that Mike Pompeo, currently the director of the CIA, former congressman, um, is successfully confirmed to Sex yeah. State. I think sure he will be. Oh, of course, he was yeah. already confirmed to CIA. The Senate tends not close. to, yeah. you know, they tend not to go back on themselves so quickly. Well, why wouldn't they? Right. So, um, in the in the legal I don't see any real distinction. Yeah. Policy-wise, I think it's quite clear that Pompeo is much closer to the president yeah. than Tillerson was. This actually should empower state, at least at the level of the secretary of state. I mean, historically, secretaries of state are significant in the modern era when they have that close personal relationship, and only then. Yeah, although I wonder so, – so that's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is Tillerson was a useful sort of veto gate. Right for the president, that you know there was sort of uh, the the phrase you hear in the media is grown ups in the room, right? The Tillerson and Mattis were t- were two of the only grown ups in the room. This is the departure of a grown up, right? That not because Pompeo isn't a serious person, but because Pompeo is, by all accounts, someone who is going to do his best to do the president's bidding and not necessarily see himself as holding some kind of independent institutional responsibility. I think he's certainly less independent of the of the personal preferences of the president than was Tillerson. Very. very very clearly so. Um, but I don't think he's in any way just a yes man. I, I think that if you look at the extent to which he was actually relatively successful mm-hmm. in, in taking the agency's perspective when he got to CIA and becoming a, a fairly reasonably vigorous proponent of, of the agency perspective, it, it's not – against a backdrop of presidential hostility towards the agency, Yeah, it's, it's possible to see something relatively similar unfolding here. I think the key thing is insofar as one wants the Secretary of State to, to in fact have real punch in diplomatic circles, uh, Pompeo's clearly got a, a, a far stronger tie into the White House and therefore his words when interacting in the diplomatic sphere will matter more. Now, that's a bug or a feature depending on well, what you want I was going to say, his to words be. like when on Face the Nation on Sunday, he said that Kim Jong-un had allowed the United States to conduct military exercises with South Korea. I mean... Yeah, that's not that's not the phrase you want. No. Uh, but the point is, Pompeo probably uh, heralds a time where the State Department suddenly, at least at the secretarial level itself, right. so, so there's still this, So there's still this question about whether Pompeo, unlike Tillerson, is going to take an interest in actually staffing the yeah. State Department. 
department. I, I suspect at some levels he will, right? Because he's he himself wants to be effective. Maybe. I mean, that's, that's an interesting question. I'll, and the last, but one last point on this. I also think there's an interesting question, you know, with these apparent North Korea talks apparently in the offing. Seems an odd time to be going through a Secretary of State transition to have no ambassador in that position and to have no undersecretary for, you know, Asian. I, I don't know what it, it would seem is. to me that in, insofar as, you know, we'll see whether those North Korea yeah. talks come off. Well, but right. I'm not cert- holding my breath. But uh, it's fairly obvious that the White House would prefer to have the, the person that they closely trust, Pompeo, in there representing that top of That's diplomatic right. capacity. Um, I actually think the much more interesting – I think there are two more interesting stories here. One is the rumor mill had started about other administration changes. So yeah. we had the Scott Pruitt, Jeff Sessions <laughs> right. whole thing blow up again yesterday. There's this whole John Bolton's going to replace McMaster's National Security Advisor meme out there. I'm going to hold judge, withhold judgment on those until they happen. But we yeah. do have, I think, I think much more attention already has been paid and is going to be paid on Pompeo's heir apparent at CIA, Gina Haspel. Right. And now let's have a big discussion about that. But first, I want to flag something because I'm sure some listeners are thinking, uh, that's great. You guys have opinions on Pompeo and Tillerson, <laughs> but where's the, where's the law on this? Um, this? I think this is an important, in the larger set of stories about possibly sidelining Sessions, possibly sidelining McMaster, definitely now having sidelined Tillerson in favor of Pompeo. Um, There is a story here about the unitary executive, the separation of powers, the extent to which the president can, in fact, compel sort of a uniformity of policy vision. There's no question that Trump obviously has been chafing at the... uh, constraints that followed from having these senior cabinet officials in various quarters who weren't entirely going along with his particular vision. And that's, yep. that's obviously part of what befell Rex Tillerson, who I think over time will, will end up being seen more favorably, not not entirely favorably, obviously, but will be seen more favorably as someone who in a Mattis-like role and maybe a McMaster-like role uh, was important for, for simply being a, a more uh, adult in the room type of person. This is a there's been a lot of talk about how those checking functions really had a lot of bite over the past year and i think the larger narrative we want to keep an eye on here is it's not like trump was just going to sit back and take that over time right and what we're witnessing with all this talk is a, a reassertion of the president's <coughs> prerogative to remove people he doesn't in fact view as part of his team that's part of the vision of, of the constitutional order for better or worse um and I, I think we're going to see more of this over time when McMaster seems set to go and being replaced possibly by someone who's going to be, you know, far more compatible with Listen, uh, Trump's there, vision. There, there's, I, you're not going to get any argument from me on the notion that the president has the legal authority to fire people who he's not getting along with and to hire people who he will get along yeah. with. What, what I guess I want to underscore is simply that we've we've had, I think, People like me, sort of never Trumpers, uh, have taken a lot of comfort in the fact that there's all this friction that's introduced. That's the the fact that it's not physically a unitary executive. But at the end of the day, the president, if focused enough and willing to spend the time and effort to align the personnel, he will eventually get the people he wants. And I think the story of late 2018 going into 2019, we're going to see a much more Trumpian executive than we've seen. So I think that's probably true. I think that what the interesting part of that story is how does that dovetail with the midterms, um, right? And and will sort of um, some kind of democratic increase in power and perhaps yeah. even take over of one or both branches of Congress? Well, one would matter more than this. the others on this issue, Quite, right? If right. they don't take the Senate, then it doesn't matter on the appointments question. If they do take the Senate 
or at least get close enough to where you just need one. Well, or they're two. already pretty close. I mean, so Haspel's, yeah, I mean, Haspel's a good case. I mean, I mean, Haspel's a good case in point. I, mean, I think. I think the if you uh, if you do an early whip count for Haspel, right, she's got some trouble unless she peels off some Democrats um, because of Rand Paul, because of John McCain, right? So, so let's talk about. Yes, so, okay. so let's talk about Gina Haspel. Gina Haspel. So Gina Haspel is currently the deputy director of the right. CIA. She's career. She's, she's not career. a politician. Yep. She's a career clandestine service officer. By all accounts, um, folks at CIA like her. Oh yeah, no. This is there's no question that from the CIA's perspective, you almost wouldn't believe going back to the Trump campaign that there would come a moment where one of their own would be placed in charge of the whole institution. So this is a from the from the internal CIA sort of what's the morale of the institution perspective, right. uh, a very good day for the agency. Which, by the way, I can't help but point out. So this terrible intelligence community that's so gung ho to sort of conspire against Trump, let's elevate one of their own to be director of CIA. Are you are you suggesting hypocrisy, Steve? I'm shocked. shocked. There's gambling in this yeah, establishment. All right. Um, here's the problem. Um, Gina Haspel's history, so far as we know, includes a fairly high degree of involvement in the CIA's RDI program, yeah, the Rendition, fairly Detention, in and Interrogation years. Program, including at least some time, although, Bobby, I think we're not exactly clear on how much time, as the senior CIA officer at the U.S. black site secret CIA detention facility in Thailand. Right. So I think that the, the two nuggets of her career trajectory, they're going to stand out in the confirmation process. There's there's her role at the at the Thailand site, uh, which we really don't know a lot of details about exactly, you know, what was her precise position? When was it? Um, and then separately, when she was chief of staff to Jose Rodriguez as, as head of, of the National Clandestine Service or the DO, um, at the time when uh, when Rodriguez ordered the destruction of the tapes that became a big controversy uh, in his book, I guess, memorializes that she drafted the cable. That, yep. But it was his, you know, she was working for him, yep. doing what he directed at that time. But obviously she's going to come under the examination for that. I mean, listen, so so I think there, there, there I'd like to make three quick points, right? So the first is we don't know exactly what role she played, right? right? And so it seems like there is, before we get to anything else, an information providing function that her oversight, that her confirmation hearing before the Senate Intelligence Committee ought to take on as its first goal, even if much of that information has to be classified, yeah. right? Now, Sissy has they, the power Maybe they've that. got some of that information actually well, bent the, into the from the From their study of the RDI program. Yeah. So so there's first this sort of, you know, let's, let's build a narrative, right? The second point is um, there are a lot of folks who are already out in public vigorously defending Haspel. Um, even assuming the worst allegations in the narrative. So General Hayden, for example, did an interview with Christian Amanpour mm -hmm. where he's saying, listen, you know, she did what had to be done. She was following orders. She did her job. You know, no no one should be should face any confirmation difficulties just for following orders. I, I think that's premature. Well, do you also then think that those who are just as vigorously condemning her? Are also acting prematurely. Yes, because there's 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 plenty of that too. Yes, In fact, yes, yes, there's no. a lot more of so, that. So I want to be clear. I mean, I I, I, I have a little bit. I mean, so I you're saying everybody should just step back and wait until we know more. Um, yes. Now I think we have a right to know more, right? I mean, so for someone who's going to be CIA, well, who's director, the we? Is it is it the public or is it the committee? Right? Because a lot of yeah. so obviously a huge amount of classified information. Yep. Position one is they don't really investigate at all, or they don't know much. That would be Posi that would be bad. Right. I think everybody agrees with that. Everybody. Position, okay. Everybody at this table. Uh, <laughs> position two is they can they gather all the information yep. you have in mind, yep. and, and it's all kept on the classified side, and it's yep. all kept out of the public yep. eye. Uh, position three is that there's there's a full public exposition of all of this so as here, part of so, the So here's the problem. Process. I think there are going to be some members of the Senate 
at least, right, who are not on the Intelligence Committee and who therefore will not be part of the committee fact-finding process who are going to want access to the file. So I guess I want to sort of end up in a middle position, which is I don't think the full file needs to be public. I think it does need to be made available to every single member of the Senate because they're the ones who are going to vote on her confirmation. That seems reasonable. Um, And I I agree. I I do want to say, listen, I, I think we ought to be able to distinguish between a narrative that what happened at the black sites was abominable, abhorrent, and should never happen again, and a narrative that anyone who comes within 10 miles of that program yeah, is forever for tainted forever. I, I, I take the perhaps controversial position that you can think the former and not the latter. I think it's not controversial to me. I appreciate that it is to others. Um, so the question then becomes, is, is what is it that would what is it, if anything, that would taint somebody sufficiently? Is it that you have to be able to show, or it would be enough to show, for example, that she was uh, was pushing for it, advancing right. and championing uh, the use of waterboarding? Like, yeah. For example, now if you if if the documentary or testimonial record shows that she was herself, you know, in some way not administering the program where these things were taking place, but actually championing right. these particular moves, I think that's a different story than one in which she is as a senior official designated to run this particular But I also want to say, I I actually think that in one sense, like, you know, building the narrative is only part of the story. I also want the intelligence committee to extract concessions from her, right? That that part of the confirmation process, we talked about this before, Mm -hmm. one of the most useful things a confirmation hearing can do is it can get someone who's about to hold this position to make promises Right, that are not legally enforceable, no, but, but that are morally weighty and politically yeah. enforceable. Yeah. Right to the relevant sense, and so, so for example, right, I I think it would be appropriate to get um, Gina Haspel to agree that the McCain-Feinstein Amendment is the law of the land. Um, oh yeah, and absolutely. Cannot, and, and right, and that it cannot be overridden even in a claim, even when there's a claim of legal necessity. Right, um, I think it would be appropriate to ask her if she has any regrets. Right about what happened during her tenure um, at the black site and elsewhere. She thinks that you know the CIA was overzealous in any respect. I mean, we know what her answer is going to be, but I think that like the get her on the record because this is now going to be the person running the CIA, and this is going to be the person who could prevent these kinds of abuses from happening again in the future. What's interesting here is that, as we've talked about on a number of our earlier shows, and eventually in about four or five months, we'll probably be talking about, again, this upcoming window for revising the field manual. Yep. Um, it, it's not a process that touches the CIA, but I still think that some amount of very public discussion about her views on um, interrogation methods and all the rest uh, has got to be out there. Yep. There's there's a real distinction here, I guess, is what we're saying between the retrospective question of, is, is, there, is there a rule of taint? that prevents anyone who was a, a senior uh, DO official from those years who had involvement in those programs yep. from, from holding higher office later on within the agency. Um, I, I, and I think that you and I are pretty close to the same That page. is not categorical, but yeah. that is not I'm sure zero. you and I draw the line in slightly different places, but yeah. But right, there's but, absolutely but some I, I, space for this. Yes, I, I think there is some space for taint, and I think there is some space for absolution. Yeah, right? I agree. That seems totally reasonable. And then there's the entirely separate question of what sort of uh, – Questions and commitments are proper at, at a minimum talking about the legal architecture and in making clear from the nominee's perspective that whoever he or she turns out to be in the end as the director will certainly obey the law. Not, not just obey and, the, and, obey and, the and law. And more, more specifically, if, if the commander in chief says, I want you to do this that's, without that's standing the law, so this that's is, the key question. This is where I'm going, right? So I want, I want, I mean, we had, you know, John Yu was at the Federal Society last week and he said, oh, hey, I'm the guy who wrote some memos, right? I want someone who is more circumspect, right? I yeah. want someone who is asked by the Senate Intelligence Committee, if the president asks for your loyalty, 
right? Your response is, I am loyal to the Constitution of the United well, States. That, that's why I want to see in all the confirmations. Well, I agree, but 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 there are there are some special ones, right? Yeah. So the Justice Department, I think, is yeah, especially yeah, sensitive here, and I think CIA is especially sensitive here. Totally agree. So that that's a key question. I'm sure it will be asked. Okay, and, and, and I suspect that in the end, she'll give the answers we would like to see. I think that's right, and I think that's valuable, right? Absolutely. And, that's, and 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 so even though I have. No illusion that if I knew the full record of Gina Haspel's involvement in the CIA program, I'd have some real qualms. And if I were in the Senate, I might not vote in favor of her confirmation. I think it actually could be a very healthy process, right, from the perspective of establishing that mistakes were made, abuses were committed, and that that shouldn't necessarily disqualify her from being CIA director going forward. I think it's reasonable. Um, last point about her, right, the other piece of, if we can sort of move from torture, the other interesting question for CIA these days is Russia. Right, and that might be a good place to sort of segue to topic two, which is um, <laughs> God. We've only done one topic. You know, All right. how how long until Russia and the United Kingdom are are, are in an armed conflict with each other? <laughs> uh, so this arises, of course, because of the attempted assassination by Russia of Sergei Skripal. How do you pronounce his name? Is this Skripal? But anyways, a, a former uh, a Russian citizen who had spied for the British and who was uh, exchanged as part of this uh, swap in which the, famously there was this group of Russian deep cover, sort of the Americans style long term <laughs> uh, agents uh, in New York and elsewhere. There was kind of notorious at the time. Everybody was swapped. Well, and lo and behold, uh, the, the Russians apparently have tried to kill this guy. And uh, it involved a, as I understand it, a unique to Russia advanced artificial toxin, a nerve agent um, that, that this guy was exposed to in some fashion. And, of course, his, his, uh, his daughter as well uh, facing a threat to her life from this or is, is on, I guess, they're on critical care at this point. Mm -hmm. But they're not dead, but it was clearly an attempted assassination. With a chemical weapon. With a chemical, with a chemical weapon, a, an advanced nerve toxin. Again, let me underscore this. The report is that the, the labs in the UK have determined this is a particular type of toxin that was developed by the Russians. It was an advanced, much stronger than VX. And, and, clear, and, and this does not appear to be an isolated incident, right? I mean, so BuzzFeed has been following the stories. I think it's now 15 um, suspicious deaths in the United Kingdom in the last, I think, year or two, oh, yeah. Yeah, no, right, that all have some connection well, to... Well, of course, we all remember the Litvinenko exactly. poisoning. Um, so there's this larger pattern here of, of and, you know, Putin's on record. There's an interview where he talks about, you know, what, what about these people that betrayed Russia? The like, traitors, you know, they die, they, they get their, they die choking on their, the coins they got. He's unquestionably uh, supportive of this sort of thing. The question is, what's what does the United Kingdom do in response? Prime Minister May has made waves by declaring this to have been an illegal, quote, use of force against the United Kingdom. So that's both legal and diplomatic <laughs> language. Let's let's unpack it. This is pretty gotten, strong legal and diplomatic it, language. And extremely rare, right? Yes. So what's we're used to these discussions about attribution right. uh, and what counts as a use of force taking place in the computer network or cyber context in recent years. That's that's just like this endless conversation we get into with respect to cyber attacks. Now we've got an actual assassination to give us a fact pattern. And the prime minister has come out exceedingly strongly uh, with a very quick and robust attribution and denominating it a use of force. So... Let, let's unpack that a bit. That's the language of Article 2.4 of the UN Charter, which forbids the use of force or the threat of force in international affairs against the territorial integrity or the, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, there's 
been lots of debate over time about what counts as a use of force. And now and now this has spawned a sprawling online debate about is this a is this a correct description of the use of force standard? Can a singular act targeting this particular type of person count as a use of force? And then this gets intermixed with questions about what counts as a quote armed attack for purposes of Article 51 of the UN Charter, which authorizes uh, states to use armed force in response to an armed attack. Um, so first thing to say about this is, uh, diplomatically, the, the the main effect of using this phrase, it's a diplomatic marker. It mm-hmm. really ratchets the heat up, to which one might say, so what? I mean, th- that's great, but that's not that big a deal. What about the legal consequences? Everyone wants to rush to the question, <laughs> of the, does this mean that there's an armed conflict? Does this mean the UK can use armed force? I have a, a headline to break here. The UK is not going to use military force against Russia in response to this event. Whatever happens is going to happen below that threshold. Right, they're going to take extreme diplomatic measures. For example, there's news that they're going to expel, I think, 23 Russians. Yeah, so I would criticize that and say that if that's all that right. were done, I don't think it's all that's going to be done, but if it were all to be done, far from being extreme, it would be just a, a feckless repeat of what they did after the Litvinenko poisoning. I, I agree, although it does give rise to my favorite acronym, right? PING. PING, right? P- Persona Non Grata, PNG. Right. Anyway, sorry. No, so the, the point is um, this question of whether it ha- has Prime Minister May basically opened up the door to a military response by the UK, that's interesting only in theory and academically. You might say, well, no, it matters because later on, if if that characterization stands, someone else who might want to use force might, in similar circumstances, analogize to it. Okay, that's interesting. We could talk about that. Um, We should talk about that. (laughs) Is it actually, Steve, a use of force for one state to use (coughs) any kind of weapon, knife or toxin, to kill a former spy who's in the territory of the other country and now has citizenship there? So, I mean, listen, I, you know this area better than I do, and so I'm, I'm a bit of an amateur here. My gut reaction is um, it may well be a use of force, right? I, I think there's a difference between sort of a one-off attack in this context and systematic uses of force. And so I think one of the things that I find so remarkable about the story is if this really is an orchestrated campaign by the Russians, I think we're getting closer and closer to the line. Yeah. That, that's interesting. So if you, so we think about the variables that would matter here. Um, was was there something intentionally lethal done? And that's checked. That gets you Check, more right. clearly into the force Quite. bucket. Um, what were the means used? You know, was it was it a missile? No, that looks more military. Looks more use of force. Like yeah. here, it's this assassination using a toxin. It, a toxin it, that may itself a, be a, a violation a, of international law. Exactly. And does that add to it? There's the scale <coughs> question. There's who's the target. So when we look around for precedents for this issue. A lot of people are pointing to when the Iraqis plotted the death of, yep. of President George H.W. Bush and the United States used force in a punitive or responsive strike. Punitive is not the right word. Um, <laughs> Definitely not the right word. But, but it's probably the fair characterization. Um, a responsive strike against the relevant security agency in Iraq. Uh, but there it was a former head of state, which is sort of the, the if you're going to have just one person targeted for use of force, that would be the best case as opposed to this example. You can go round and round. And again, I'm not sure it really matters all that much. The uh, the question under Article 51 for opening the door towards a responsive uh, resort to military force, that's armed attack. The U.S. position is that there's no difference between the use of force standard under Article 2.4. There's no gap between it and what counts also as an Article 51 armed attack. That's the no gap position. And so therefore, in the U.S. view, 
if you accept that this was a use of force by the Russians against the United Kingdom, then Article 51, the light is green. Um, Although the light is green doesn't mean that you have to, th- that you must therefore go. It's just, that same, that's true. You don't have to go. It's just a green light. Um, and it doesn't mean anything goes either. It means necessary and proportional uses of force in response to uh, respond are appropriate, but only that. Now, others, many others, maybe most others, take the view outside the United States that there is a degree of gap, that use of force is sort of the, the floor there under Article 2.4, but that there's a little bit of a delta, perhaps a lot of a delta, depending on what you think, before it rises to the level of armed attack. Again, the UK is not going to respond with its own armed attack against Russia. So I don't think we, we're getting there. What are they going to do? Uh, Steve mentioned they've already uh, PNG'd some diplomats. Uh, and the thing is, th- that's their sovereign right to do that. They don't need to make an Article 51 showing. They don't even need to show that what Russia did at least was an internationally wrongful act justifying countermeasures. That is a state action that would otherwise violate international law, but all below the threshold mm-hmm. of force in armed, armed attack. You can, you can PNG. Uh, whoever you want to sure. from the foreign country, and they've done that. Um, could they prosecute someone if they can get their hands on the right people? Sure. Again, that's their sovereign right. doesn't require showing even an internationally wrongful act. What is it everyone's talking about, what the UK could do, might do, should do? Serious economic sanctions. This has been the missing piece for the British in responding to prior Russian provocations of exactly this kind, let alone other kinds. Um, there are a lot of friends of the regime and enemies of the regime, obviously, but friends of the regime who have property in London, who live in London, who run about in London. Anyone who spent time in, in Mayfield or run around London, you've probably seen these guys and their friends walking around. The British have not heavily sanctioned or significantly sanctioned targeted Russian oligarchs and cronies of Putin. The big question right now is, are they going to do it? But here's the thing. Again, you don't have to make any kind of countermeasures type argument, let alone an armed attack argument to do that. This is their sovereign right to do it if they want to do it. So at the end of the the analysis, I think what you come to is this is super interesting academically, whether this constitutes a use of force. It has implications as a precedent. It doesn't affect whatever the range of options the British are realistically going to pursue here. But let's hope they pursue something. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there is a there is a growing question about not just British reaction to Russian um, uh, shenanigans, but sort of coordinated international reaction to Russian shenanigans. There was an interesting moment, I think, earlier this week, where for a time, the president's reaction through Sarah, Sa- Sarah Huckabee Sanders was to sort of not say anything about this attack and not attribute it to Russia. But now apparently the U.S. is actually going all in on that. Absolutely. No, there's there's no question in, in Thank goodness for that, right? So the, the French, have, Macron has come out very strongly endorsing the British attribution and declaring solidarity. And now, belatedly, but nonetheless, let's give credit, the, the White House has stepped up um, and has, including but not limited to uh, the Treasury uh, sanctions that were announced today, yeah. uh, joined in the attribution and in, in declaring some degree of solidarity. Uh, interestingly, today is the day that the Treasury Department finally dropped these long-awaited right. sanctions. So let's talk about that because on a previous episode, we did sort of a deep dive into the uh, the statute known as the Countering America's Adversaries Through Sanctions Act, or CATSA. Uh, Countering America's Adversaries Through Sanctions Act. This is the legislation that Congress uh, shoved down the executive's throat uh, 
making sure that there's a sanctions regime in the offing or that sanctions would be used in response to Russian cyber activities and a bunch of other things. And in an earlier episode, we noted that incredibly, the Trump administration was it seemed not to be acting under Section 224 of the statute, which called for a study of, of the Russian cyber meddling issue and in sanctions as appropriate thereafter by a certain date. And, and there was a really remarkable seeming unwillingness to do this. But there were statements in fairness from Treasury, at least, saying, no, no, we're working on this. It's yep. coming. And damned if today they didn't do it. I know. So hats off to Treasury. Uh, let me read a few things. This is from the official Treasury Department statement. Um, and this emanates out of the Office of Foreign Assets Control, OFAC. The administration is confronting and countering malign Russian cyber activity, including their attempted interference in U.S. elections. Wow, there it is. Uh, comma. Destructive cyber attacks and intrusions starting. Wait, the critical- Russians interfered. <laughs> it says it right here. So, that is, so that is a direct quote from the Treasury Secretary Mnuchin. Wait, I just want to point. I, 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 I want to point this out. This is the Secretary of the Treasury saying there yep. was Russian interference. Yes. Okay. Yep. Uh, I, I, I just, you know, yep. it, it's worth pointing out when you know. Absolutely. People- no. Full credit. And it gets it gets better. Uh, skipping ahead a bit. Treasury intends to impose additional. Katsa sanctions informed by the intelligence community to hold Russian government officials and oligarchs accountable for their destabilizing activities by severing their access to the U.S. financial system. That's exactly what they should be doing. Good job, Secretary Mnuchin. Good job, people at OFAC, the whole team. Congratulations. Um, there's, there's sort of a bill of particulars that follows, specifically interference in the 2016 U.S. election. And that's a quote. Hey! Uh, including... The NotPetya attack, which is specifically attributed here to GRU, Russian military intelligence. That's not a surprise. We know that's who did it. But it's nice to see the U.S. government actually saying it in such a a meaty way. Uh, And then my favorite quote in the whole thing, adding to the bill of particulars, the recent use of a military-grade nerve agent in an attempt to murder two U.K. citizens further demonstrates the reckless and irresponsible conduct of the Russian government. Huh. Um, so really, really strong stuff here. Um, now, the scope of the sanctions, fairly limited, but it's, you know, it's, it's all the people you might want and expect to see. It's a lot of names off of the list from the Mueller indictment of the Internet Research Agency. You've got IRA there. You've got uh, Yevgeny uh, Prigozhin, the, the oligarch and... Uh, and sort of jack of all trades, uh, who we've been talking about, number of other entities. There's specific sanctioning of, of the GRU and FSB, though they're already sanctioned in relation to the Ukraine uh, debacle from before. So all in all, uh, a nice use of the economic powers and, and indeed obligations the executive branch has. But this isn't the only economic power that the executive branch has been flexing this past week, Steve. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the tariffs on steel and aluminum, which were justified on national security grounds. And we hit this theme of how the executive branch enjoys a lot of sort of sweeping pre-delegated powers. To, once they find sort of, quote, national security, unquote, to be implicated. Right. And, and they're really not reviewable. It's, it's, it's really in many ways sort of a blank check for the or executive branch. Or at least hard branch. to review. Yeah, yeah. Not, some of these authorities have some, yeah. you know. Okay. You're not likely to get anywhere and, and challenge no. it. it. Speaking of which, that's certainly the view from Broadcom headquarters. Well, so this is, so this is interesting. So I actually, you know, Bobby, you are usually the person on this podcast who beats the everybody chill out. Some of these things are not Trump. Some of these things are the government. Right, right. right. And actually, I think this may be another one where the headlines kind of missed the nuance a bit on what was going on. So so we got to talk about uh, CFIUS. What is CFIUS? The Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. So 
there's uh, there's a great history behind this because it it's sort of a it's it's Sibius is sort of a Gen X thing, right? In the midst in the seventies, amidst panic over over OPEC's growing clout and aggressiveness, uh, which was not just expressed through you know the the, the infamous embargo, but also a, a lot of Saudi and other investments in the United States of all this newfound wealth. In, in short, foreign direct investment in various U.S. properties and industries. This causes lots of anxiety. The Ford administration decides to form an interagency committee that the, the general tasking of which was to start looking at all this foreign direct investment in the U.S. and considering is any of this actually bad for us in terms right. of you know acquiring sensitive uh, intellectual property, if you will, or something that's important to the uh, sort of the, the flow of, of equipment into military activities. Um, so. This then turns out to be a bit of a false start. The committee, this initial version of the committee doesn't do much, doesn't have a lot of clear <coughs> statutory authority. They eventually get clear statutory authority. Fast forward to the 80s. Now it's not fear <laughs> of OPEC. Now it's fear of Japan. Right. right. So quick segue, Steve. There was this whole like wave of pop culture angst about rising Japanese economic yep. power. Yep. Um, what are the what do you think best movies expressing that? Angst? Rising Sun, Rising Sun with Wesley Snipes, with Wesley Snipes and Sean Connery. That was a Michael Crichton book, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was pretty good. I, I, I on the sillier side, I was yeah. going to go with Gung Ho, of course. Well, yeah, it was kind of obvious. That's I mean, very on the nose. But you know, there's yeah, there's some racism in Rising Sun. Oh, you, you mean <laughs> like the Getty White and everything? Poor Getty White and was in in the eighties had yeah. a little bit of that. You know, it's yeah. pretty. It's a it's a it's a it's a very interesting sort of time capsule of a movie expressing sort of uh, Rust Belt anxieties about the Quite. challenge of Japanese car making. Quite. And had Michael Keaton, a bunch of other George Went. Um, all right, back to work. Uh, back to work. So a particular episode, Fujitsu was going to acquire Fairchild Semiconductors. Yep. Yep. And, and so chips uh, were an issue. Chips have always been sort of centered to the CFIUS process. And the Reagan administration uh, ultimately began to express opposition to the deal. Didn't have cle- It wasn't clear what Reagan's administration could actually do to bar this fair market transaction. But the, the friction was enough. There are a lot of indirect levers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, questions about you know the future contracting opportunities for DOD, for example. The si- the sale fell through, but it really crystallized attention to the idea that you know maybe there should just be some sort of pre-delegated authority f- for the president to be able to bar on national security grounds a foreign acquisition of a U.S. company. Um, and and, and the, Congress provided such authority. Congress provided. This was floating around for a while, the Exxon Florio yep. Amendment. Yep. Now, not not Exxon Mobil type Exxon, no, no. but James. Was it James? Senator uh, James Exxon? I think that's right, but don't E-X-O-N. quote me before Anyways, my time. It, it, there was a bunch of back and forth, and, and there was a lot of uh, anxiety about how broad this authority would be framed. The Reagan administration actually was was somewhat resistant to the idea of framing the grounds for such interference narrowly. This is sort of from a free market perspective. This is a troubling power to hand to the executive mm-hmm. branch. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, they are the Reagan administration argued for a narrow uh, framing of yep. what the grounds were. Yep. Keep it to national security with sort of an orientation towards uh, military and intelligence applications in any event. And or, and or, right, trade secrets, right? That sort of trade secrets that would disrupt military and intelligence capabilities in the United States. Right. So kind of, you might say, hard national security, where national security might otherwise spill pretty broadly. Exactly. Um, Eventually, you get in the 1988 Omnibus Trade and Competitiveness Act. That one! Yes, the old OTCA. Uh, The authority you can find today at 50 U.S. Code 4565. It's a really cool read, the CFIUS... Statute. It's Wait, got all I, sorts I, I, of, I just want to stop for a second. Cool. You just referred to a U.S. code provision really, as a quote really cool read. It's a you got a grade on the curve. 
You got to grade on the curve. This is relative I'm, I'm, judgment. I'm just saying, like, I mean, you and I are cut from similar cloth in this respect, but I'm not sure all of our listeners are. Uh, well, you know, they're, they've come to the wrong show. They don't <laughs> enjoy that kind of nerding out. Um, give, it, give it a look. What you see there basically is there's a process for reviewing transactions. And this is all coming into the headlines uh, this week because Broadcom, a formerly U.S. company uh, now based in Singapore, though planning apparently to come back and re-domicile in the U.S. because of the Tax Act, uh, but they haven't done it yet. And therefore, their interest in still U.S. company Qualcomm brings them within the potential reach of the CFIUS process. Now, if not for this, if Broadcom was just a U.S. company that was going to buy Qualcomm, there's no standing authority for the president to say, I don't want one company to buy another, therefore they can't. But through CFIUS, the, the magic of CFIUS, if you find a national security justification, you can. Now, is the national justific national security justification here that this is a sort of ostensibly foreign company because they're now domiciled in Singapore? Actually, no, that it's not. That's not it. It's not some sort of like, hey, Broadcom's a proxy for foreign countries. No, it's, to, it's actually much more sophisticated. You no, know, it's it's very interesting. It's basically a claim that Broadcom is a corporate M and A player has, for fairly or not, been characterized as an entity that will come in, they will buy some entity, and they will cut R&D, among other things, cut research and development funding to sort of leverage up short-term profits, profits in kind of a classic sort of a, you know, make money in the short-term acquisition strategy. And the reason this is thought to pose a national security threat, if they were to do that to Qualcomm, is that Qualcomm is America's leader in developing 5G wireless technology, the next generation network, where Qualcomm and China's Huawei are often cited as sort of the global leaders in this area. So as I understand it, the basic fear boils down to the idea that Man, Broadcom's going to buy these guys, gut their R&D, and as a result, America will fall behind in the 5G race, which we already know the Trump White House is right. very specifically concerned. Fall behind to China. Specifically. Fall specifically to China, exactly. And i got to say, I agree. Now, I don't know if the factual case for Broadcom actually posing this particular threat to Qualcomm is legit or not. But so, if it's so, legit, I do think that's a national security concern. So there's an unclassified letter dated March 5th, right? That is, I mean, so there are two letters. There's a March 5th, there's a, a letter from earlier this week, the one that actually recommended to President Trump that he block the deal, which he did, right? And that's what's the, the, the headline splash one. The much more important letter is the March 5th letter um, from Assistant Deputy Assistant Secretary Meir, right, to the lawyers, um, to Mark Plotkin and, and Ted Kassinger, the Broadcom Qualcomm case, which actually sets out at least an unclassified form, the national security considerations. And I have to say, I agree. I found them pretty convincing. Yeah. And so this actually seems, this is interesting. Above board. It, this is totally above board. It's very parallel to the process we described with uh, the, the tariffs on steel and aluminum. Yeah. But, but if anything, more persuasive and more, more legitimate. Oh, well, yeah. the, so, so, but, so the tariffs, I mean, so again, I want to go back to that, just, just to remind folks of our tariffs discussion. We agree that the president has the legal authority, right? But that was at least one of us, I think, disputed. I think we both disputed the policy wisdom, right? Oh, so, yeah. No, right. no, no. I'm, look, I'm, I'm very much a, a whereas, free trade kind of guy. This, this. Whereas here, right, I actually have a hard time seeing, you know, as, as a policy matter, why this yeah. doesn't make perfect sense. Right. Well, so this has caused a huge amount of angst in the tech community well, and the business community because, of course, it's an interference with the free market transaction. Um, and it underscores 
a, new, a second area to add to our growing list of areas in which the Congress, for better or worse, has pre-delegated its control over foreign commerce in a way that gives the president the ability at the stroke of a pen to intervene in ways you would never see in the domestic economy. And listen, you know, I mean, the I'm not, this is not, that's not my sort of brief here, right? My point is just that the narrative that, oh, look at Trump, you know, go flying off the handle again. That is not this, No, right? no, absolutely not. This absolutely is CFIUS not. doing exactly what Congress wants it to do and the president simply adopting their recommendation. I, I think many observers have said that over recent years, what you've seen is is both from Obama and now especially the Trump White House, a lot of interest in using the CFIUS process to better police uh, this sort yeah. of issue. One thing just to flag is a, a listener might be thinking, well, why, did, why do they need this complex apparatus? Why not just issue sanctions under our favorite AIPA, AIPA, the International Economic Emergency Powers Act? And the answer, of course, is that it's simply much more costly to do that in terms of the optics domestically and internationally. Yep. A, you have to have a declared national emergency to which the sanction would be relevant, and B, it's really a sanction. You are blocking the assets or in some tailored way denouncing the uh, entity. No one's denouncing Broadcom here in the same sense. Yeah, yes, there's criticism and certainly a harm to them, but it's not a denunciation in the form of a sanction. So that's why it has to happen that way. Okay, Steve, what else have we got? Ah, it's a slow news week, right? So the next thing on the slow news week was the release of the unclassified version of the Trump administration's war powers report, uh, right? The sort of report Congress had requested, what, under last year's NDAA? Yeah, they had, they had to issue an update as to whether they had changed things. Where are they on this Obama administration document where late in the Obama administration they had produced this very fulsome document that's sort of the the – for the record, our final argument about what the legal architecture and the policy architecture is in relation to counterterrorism activities and combat activities overseas. So all the usual, all our favorite topics, AUMF stuff, war powers resolution, Article 2, where are U.S. forces fighting, what is the framework in each of these geographic locations. And there was a fairly strong, it was, it was due on Monday. And there was a lot of a sort of a blogospheric commentary anticipating the, the release of this document. I don't know if anyone really thought it was going to be sort of this dramatic spilling of secrets. I've read the unclassified document that Charlie Savage uh, had, had posted. Uh, it's about eight pages. It looks, as several people have said, it looks just like recent War Powers Resolution periodic reports. I don't see anything in there that looks different in kind or different from what I expected to see. It looks actually almost entirely like continuity with the prior document. And there's a lot of lines in it saying, you know, this is pointing out, this is the same position that was in the Obama administration's report. So to me, it's a very status quo document. Um, I think that's right. I think I would just – so I would say two things. One, we learned some stuff, right, from the document or at least related to the release of the document. For example, about this um, Nigerian episode last December that apparently the Trump administration had – I'll say underreported to Congress. Um, I think there's some question about just how thorough the War Powers Resolution report was with regard to that episode, um, right? I mean, Charlie Savage and a couple others had a story today in the New York Times about that. Um, I, listen, I, I, there's nothing in this report that shocked me. I think it could have been a whole lot more detailed. Um, well, in, the, in the classified version, presumably. In the classified version, is. presumably is. I think the question, as always, is, okay, Congress, you've got your report. Now what? Yeah. Like, and, and of course, and the answer, as always, is, well, there's some bills floating around. Maybe uh, there, <laughs> there, is, there is talk. Apparently, uh, Senator Corker has talked about uh, 
Senate Foreign Relations moving forward on an AUMF renewal bill or, or clarification bill. You know, we've, we've been down that road many times over the years, but I wonder if maybe this one might actually go through. Uh, perhaps people in the White House have begun to focus on the fact that some of the litigation that's gradually beginning to bubble up thanks to Doe v. Mattis and other cases, and it would certainly bubble up the moment they bring anyone new to Guantanamo, if they bring an Islamic State detainee or an AQAP detainee or anyone who's not fairly close to the original Guantanamo fact patterns, they're going to have real trouble, real legal risk if they don't have a fresh AUMF. And so we'll, we'll see if that goes anywhere. I think this particular use of force report and, and the related story uh, about the the numerous firefights that have taken place with U.S. forces uh, embedded with locals in Niger, I, I just don't see this adding a lot to it. Um, well, I, I, the, the unclassified version does it. I, I'm yeah. really curious if the classified version does, and it would certainly be nice if the House and Senate Armed Services Committees, you know, maybe sort of took the report and ran with it and actually um, maybe this prompted them to actually push once again for revisiting some of the AUMF debates. So I think that one thing to highlight here, everyone who listens to a show like this probably has at least some familiarity with the fact that when it comes to covert action, Title 50 covert action, there's a a fairly well-trod pathway um, Mm -hmm. through which CIA has to report and provide some degree of granular uh, oversight to the House and Senate Intelligence Committees. People tend not to be at all familiar with the relatively similar but much more recent vintage oversight framework that the House and Services House and Senate Armed Services Committees have created for killer capture missions outside of designated zones of active hostilities uh, carried out by the military. And uh, I don't, you know, I'm not in a position to talk about or to know about the particulars of how granular it is, but it's clear to me at least that there's been an effort over a number of years to create that granular oversight. I think that those committees actually do know quite a bit about these sorts of things. Now, what that framework doesn't capture is is symbolized by the Niger activities Charlie wrote about in his piece. That is, situations where U.S. forces are indeed getting into firefights, indeed, uh, as one uh, the December incident involved uh, the killing of 11 ISIS fighters who seemed to have ambushed a uh, Niger group that had U.S. Uh, Green Berets embedded with them. Um, that's not a kill capture operation by U.S. forces. So right. it wouldn't fall within the scope of that. So as, as has been the case, you know, going back to Vietnam and beyond, situations where we are acting by, with, and through local forces where we've embedded to advise, yep. assist, and train. Yep. And by dint of being there in that capacity, we may come under fire and therefore fire back in self-defense. That's sort of the big, sensitive, fuzzy category. And, and listen, it's always going to be fuzzy, right? I think my concern is not with its fuzziness. My concern is that there's an awful lot of these fuzzy things happening, right? And and one would think that Congress would take more of a active, or at least there'd be more of an appearance that Congress was taking an active interest other than just when, as in like the Yemen case, there's some sort of boil over point. Is it good enough if they're actually taking an active interest privately? That um, they know and that the right committees are Sure. Engaged. Listen, again, I mean, I, I this we're, so we're, we're going to pivot to the Intelligence Committee in a second. I have plenty of faith in the Armed Services, Armed Forces Committees, right, um, to conduct rigorous oversight and accountability behind the scenes, right? I think there's, there's a better track record there. I, it, it would just be nice to know, to have some indication that that's happening. And, and you know, we don't. Well, this segue is nice to the next topic, which Indeed. is that part, part of what goes on here, you know, y- there's a level of trust that, yes. that it is a, a broad and amorphous thing. 
And for one particularly sensitive committee, it's it's really been cratered in that respect. By trust. Yeah, so the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence has really suffered. It's going to have a, it's going to have a hard time rebuilding its, rebuilding its credibility. So I, was it a Sunday or Monday? I, the days are running together in my head. Um, the House Intelligence Committee announced that it had concluded its investigation into the Russian interference question and had determined that, Bobby, there was no collusion and that they would be making no criminal referrals to the Justice Department. Uh, the end. Are you surprised? I'm disappointed, yeah. right? I mean, like, I, you know, I mean, I, I actually, I tweeted this on, on, on whenever it happened, Sunday or Monday. I actually think the report would have been more credible Right, if they had picked just a couple of random people to refer for criminal prosecutions, <laughs> like it's just this is such a you know, and then you got that all caps tweet right from President Trump yeah. saying I've, I've been vindicated, right? No collusion. <laughs> it's like I just I'm not surprised, but this is the nadir to which you know this oversight function has has fallen, right? And yeah. I, I just I, I don't know how you can look at what is already in the public domain, thanks largely to the special counsel, mm -hmm. about what the Russians did and think that there's just nothing to investigate. And indeed, some members of the House Intelligence Committee's majority have already walked away yeah. from the report. So I, I as I said in the, Sorry, in the, in the run up. no, you should be fired up. I, I tend to the view that this was not likely to ever produce anything useful at this point. And so Well useful them, to whom? It was I think it's incredibly useful to the president and his supporters. Well I'm clearly not trying to maximize <laughs> well, that. But useful right. to the public and in what the <laughs> function of the committee ought to be. Truth, uh, justice, the American way. Clearly, that was going nowhere. So I'm happy for them to just get out of this business and leave leave the stage, so that the Senate Select Committee, which yeah. has been vastly more responsible under Senators Burr and Warner, and the Special Counsel, can all carry on their. Listen, investigations. I, I, I am certainly happy for Devin Nunes' 15 minutes to be over. I, I'm not. I'm actually still worried that it's not that he'll find some oh way God, to, to come back. Um, I just think it is a you know. The, the, don't take my word for it. Go look at what Trey Gowdy, right, yeah. the, 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 a member of the House Intelligence Committee, right, uh, the, the majority, is saying about their own freaking report. And tell me that this isn't a complete cluster F of a you-know-what that should not be followed for any reason whatsoever. Tell us how you really feel. <sighs> All right. Anyway, um, I, I suspect that that is not the last we're going to hear about the, you know, Russian interference piece of the story. Yeah. Uh, um, Bob Mueller has been very quiet for a couple weeks now. Blissfully so, but, you know, wait till next week. Oh, no, no, no. It's coming. All right. Um, speaking of waiting until next week, um, Al save, Alwi. Save that till next week. So I just week. want to say really quickly. So this is a case. This is a, Guant this is a good old-fashioned Guantanamo habeas petition, um, what we might have shorthanded as an end of hostilities petition, where the question is whether, you know, 16 years into the armed conflict, detention authority is unraveling at Guantanamo. The district court said no, um, but in an opinion that actually suggested that courts have a fairly robust role to play in answering that question. So not just binding deference to the executive branch. Just, you know, the record is sufficiently strong to support the government on the merits here. Mm -hmm. um, I, the, the D.C. Circuit three-judge panel, Chief Judge Garland, Judge Karen Henderson, uh, Judge Griffith, right, are going to hear this case Tuesday morning. I, I don't think they're going to disagree, but I think we'll have some interesting things to say hopefully next week 
about not what the result's going to be. I think we know what the result's going to be, but what the court might say to actually move this ball forward in, in helpful ways. That would be a good one to watch for. Um, it, speaking of good things to watch for... Um, March Madness! It is actually now officially tipped off. I think the first game is is officially... Because I don't, I don't count the, the, the first four. That's just... That's just that. That doesn't count. By the way, you know the the final is in San Antonio. So I have a really good uh, one of my best friends, Josh Friedman. Hey, Josh, um, was for a time the Duke Blue Devil. Um, oh, really? The mascot. Um, and Josh actually um, is in a a, a a big Duke fan who, from time to time, has been able to um, procure tickets to Duke basketball games. Hey, buddy, podcast. So I was going to say. So so so, Josh, if you're listening. Uh, San Antonio is just an hour and 20 minutes away. Mi casa es su casa. If su ticket is mi ticket. You need a driver. I'll be your driver. Indeed. Um, so, you know. <laughs> we'll record the podcast in route. So, so, that, so that's actually a good segue to who I have winning the national championship. Oh, what, a, what, a, what an unfortunate pick. Go well, ahead. So, let's hear it. No, no, no. But I mean, this is all, you know, I think, I think it's not unrelated that like my hope in being able to go to some aspect of the final four may have influenced my bracket a little corrupt. bit. This is corrupt. It is corrupt. All right. Totally corrupt. By the way, we are, uh, in case you're curious, they're at the first TV timeout, and URI is up over Oklahoma 9 to 8. Well, that's consistent with my prediction. Which is URI beating Oklahoma. All right. So let's do this. I don't, let's not, let's not pick all 63 games. No, let's not. Um, why don't we just go right to the Sweet 16? So I'm okay. going to, do you want to go region by region? Yeah, yeah. So in the South, South okay. is, that, is that a good place to start? Okay. Yeah, sure. I've got, um, I've got a whole lot of chalk. Um, I actually have perfect chalk. I've got Virginia. Arizona, Tennessee, and Cincinnati. I got Virginia, Arizona, but I do not have Tennessee. I think Miami, your old school, oh. is going to knock them off, and they're going to be playing Cincinnati. It's going to be hard for Miami to knock them off when they're at home after they got pasted by Loyola of Chicago. You'll see. All right, so so <laughs> I have cho- – okay, so who do you have coming out of that region? UVA. UVA, interesting. Yes. I don't have UVA getting past DeAndre Ayton in Arizona. Yeah, we'll see. Um, but I actually have Cincinnati. Um, I have I have revised my my so I've got Cincinnati winning the Going winning the Bearcat. South region. Go Bearcats! Okay, all right. Which next? Uh, West. Okay. All right. So um, so I have a weird little bit of a fi- of a Sweet Sixteen coming out here. Okay. I've got eighth seeded Mizzou. Interesting. Um, with the the superstar uh, freshman kid who uh, Port- Michael Porter Jr. who didn't play all year, mm. lighting it up. Um, <laughs> I've got Mizzou and Gonzaga in the Sweet okay. Sixteen. And I've got, as folks will remember from last week, Michigan oh, and yeah. North Carolina. All right. So uh, I actually have Florida State knocking off Mizzou in that first oh. round. So Xavier's then going to knock off Florida State. So you get Xavier and Gonzaga in one one part. Mm-hmm. And then the Cougs, Houston Cougs, getting all the way to face the Tar Heels. And in a preview of A Disagreement to Come, <laughs> I do have the Tar Heels emerging from the, the West. So I have Michigan beating North Carolina. I have Gonzaga beating Mizzou. And I've got Michigan beating Gonzaga to go to the Final Four. That's just because my parents went to Michigan. I'm kind of biased. There you go. All right. Uh, going to the Midwest. Um, so I actually have mostly chalk here. I've got Kansas, the one seed, Duke, the two, Michigan State, the three. But my one, one of my two double-digit teams in the Sweet 16, because I just like to go crazy, uh-huh. New Mexico State. Ooh. Coming out of that little that little pod. Okay, so I have a very different bracket because I've gone ACC mad. Ah, I, I've it's always got, dangerous, like having Miami on. Yeah, it. no, this is this is this is where I'm just kind of going for broke here. This is going to collapse wildly. I actually have uh, NC State and Clemson, uh-huh. Michigan State and Duke, and you know from last week I have Michigan State emerging from the Midwest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I will say that Duke Michigan State Sweet Sixteen game. That's gonna be awesome. That's but it's a ridiculous Sweet Sixteen. No, game. it's too early for that. Come on, game. committee. Yeah, come on. All right, and so you've got Michigan State coming out. 
out of that region. Yeah, I do. I've got Duke beating Kansas. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so so far, three of Cincinnati, Michigan, Duke, right? My first three Final yeah. Four. E- easily my worst pick, by the way, is that somehow NC State's going to knock off uh, Kansas oh. in the second round. Uh, good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, but if I get that, that's big. Listen, that's how this thing works, right? All right, moving to the East. Yeah, I, yeah. I have, I have I, my, the one bracket where my Final Four picks from last week ran into each other was the East. Yeah, I had that in the South. Um, what did you have? So I have, um, coming in the Sweet 16, I've got... Um, uh, the top two seeds, I have Villanova and Purdue actually going all the way to the Elite Eight. Okay. Um, but the other two teams I have in the Sweet 16 are Wichita State, I guess that's chalk, um, and St. Bonaventure. Nice Go Bonnies. Because, um, true fact, every year that there's been a first four, one of the 11 seeds that wins, wins their first round game as well. Oh, that's pretty cool. Well, I like that idea. I have a similar spirit, but in my case, it's it's Stephen F. Austin. Well, so I have Stephen F. Austin in the second round. I love that. So but I, then losing the St. Bonnie. So we both think they're going to knock off Texas Tech as I mean, a 14. We've watched Texas Tech too many times this year. Yeah, I, I really think that's a good pick. I think Stephen F. Austin's going to take down Tech. Uh, then I have them getting past Florida, falling to Purdue. So it's, it's Villanova and Wichita State. Stephen F. Austin and Purdue. Mm-hmm. Purdue, as I said the other week, comes yep. out of it. I have Villanova so. coming out of it, which means I don't have Wichita State. So my final four is Villanova, Duke, Michigan, Cincinnati. I have UVA, Chapel Hill on one side and Purdue, Michigan State on the other. So and we have none of the same four teams right. in the final four. And then my finals, Chapel Hill, Michigan State, and then the Tar Heels win the whole thing. So my final is Duke, Cincinnati. And hey, Josh. Be a good friend. I may have screwed it up getting included in that. I was going to say. So, Josh, I just wanted to note for the record, Bobby has North Carolina winning the whole thing and doesn't have Duke in the Final Four. Keep that in mind (laughs) when it comes time to figure out who gets that last ticket to the national semifinals. Hey, just for the record, I have Texas winning their opener. Uh, so do I. Yeah. Um, even though I actually don't think they will. Um, uh, I feel uh, like I couldn't. Nevada is. I have it. Nevada. And it. Nevada is an underrated good team. But speaking of Texas, so just I want to say a word about the women's tournament. Right. Oh, yeah. Which gets oh, yeah. Total short shrift. Yep. Yep. Um, the te- uh, I think Texas is actually going to go pretty far in the women's tournament as well. Here's the problem. UConn is just better than everybody. And so, like, there's almost no point in doing a bracket for the women's tournament. First of all, because it's almost always chalk. Right, like I think one year, fifteen of the sixteen top sixteen seeds went to the yeah. Sweet Sixteen, and second, you know, yeah, UConn didn't win last year; they're going to win this year. But this gives me a chance to say the women's Division Three Final Four is this weekend, and the defending national champion, undefeated Amherst College uh, Mammoths, the, the are man, going not for. The Jeffs, the lady we changed Jeffs. our name. We changed our name. All right, all right. I, I, it does, I'm bitter about this. <laughs> um, going for 60, 65 and 66 wins in a row and back-to-back undefeated national championship seasons. Let's go Amherst. I, I am excited about that, as you can imagine. Um, I, I can't imagine that much excitement. <laughs> there all right. you go. <laughs> On that note, um, hopefully we will not need to talk to you until next week. All right. That, let, let's hope for that. Let's hope I mean, for that. It is spring break. Yeah, two episodes is enough. Yep. Um, that that could be our title for today. Two, two episodes is enough, or the eyes of Scythius. The eyes of Scythius. I like that. That's um, the right eyes of Scythius. All right. So on that note, everybody, stay safe out there. Follow Bobby at Bobby Chesney. Follow me at Steve underscore Vladek. Follow the podcast at NSL Podcast. Grandma, if you made it this far, I love you. I'll see you in a couple weeks. Adios.